Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. This is going to be around episode 60. Which is amazing. And uh, this time I'm talking to someone who, frankly, I've, I should have been talking to a little bit before, but I was, I was unclear as to how available he was. But it, it appears that he is available and he's around. And so welcome, Paul Simons. How are you? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good. Good to be here. And where are we talking to you from? I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, the weather is cool and chilly, It's uh, although it's becoming summer here and winter yeah. there. <laughs> and how how was your experience there? How, how do you how do you feel about being there? Um, I like it. I'm glad I'm not in the U.S. I'm glad to be a little bit separated from the insanity that's currently happening in yeah. North America. Yeah. Um, it's you know Brazil is it's such a it's such a different place. Just it's such a large country and you know 250 million people and it's got its own concerns. But you know there there's good anarchism happening here. There's a lot of interesting folks kind of doing interesting things. As an example, we're the the hundredth anniversary of the general strike in 1917 uh, is being celebrated now. And so I'm going to a play next week about it. So yeah, it's it's good stuff, and it gives me a chance to to read and to work a little bit. Plus, the the one skill that I retain at my age, which is being able to speak English, is a little bit marketable. So that makes it kind of fun too. And I get to meet new people as I teach them the the horrible language of English. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Well, I mean, just to follow up a little bit on Brazil, even though the the goal for today is for us to talk about technology, can you talk a little bit about your your understanding of how how the Brazilian anarchist space is different than the North American space? Yeah, sure. The um, well, it's it's kind of interesting because there are some there are some similarities. As an example, the uh, Sao Paulo just had their big anarchist book fair, and there are a number of groups which I would consider to be effectively black anarchist groups, which are excluded specifically from that event in terms of selling and providing their information to other people. So really. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There is a strong still holdover from, like I said, the 1917 general strike. There is a strong red anarchist influences here, which is really sectarian, is really exclusionary. And it kind of makes the L.A. Book Fair look like kind of a joke because, I mean, these people will they'll accept applications, but they'll just get back to them and say, no, this is not what we consider anarchism. This is not, you know, this doesn't go with our goals or guidelines, that type of thing. So there's a great deal of platform. Uh, specifics. As a matter of fact, one of the big claims to fame currently in Brazil is that the platform was just recently retranslated for like the sixth time into Portuguese, and that was a big deal. And I guess they sold a lot of books on that. So, but there's a there's an underground. The the FAI IRF material is is making some headway here. There are slowly some actions that are coming, and it's primarily through squatters, through autonomous as well as through a number of kind of the post-anarchist groups associated with the universities. There is a, there's kind of a growing uh, realization that, you know, in Brazil, as advanced as the economy has become over the course of the past three or four decades, that the red anarchist appeals have gone unheard by most of the people and the poor people who represent a significant portion of the population, 60% of Sao Paulo is a favela, you know, just their the, the appeals to workers means nothing to them, you know, because they don't work, you know. Right. So. And, and, and another way to put that is that 60% of Sao Paulo are the, uh, is in the ring of, of sub-housing? Correct. Outside of it? Yeah. The, yeah. the periphery, yeah. Right. What's what's known as traditionally the periphery, almost like a science fiction Blade Runner type of term. But, yeah. But, but all the, all the big cities in South America have that phenomenon, right? Exactly, exactly. I, you know, it's, it became institutional in Brazil, you know, historically after the end of slavery. They wanted the slaves to move out of the country because they were hard to control there and into the city because they were easy to control there. So all the ex-slaves were given property. You, you squat on a piece of land for two days. Effectively, it became yours. So it was one of the ways that they responded to all of a sudden the freeing up of roughly a quarter of the population with no work, nothing going on. And so the, the, the urbanization, which we associate with, you know, modernity was here an institutional uh, uh, forum, was an institutional uh, imperative. And they, they followed through with it. And the fabulous today are examples of that. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so you talk about the similarities. What are the differences? Um, I think the differences are that to a certain extent, 
Um, I don't want to talk about being ahead or being behind, but there's still a there's there's still a deep fascination with kind of the post structuralists. There's a deep fascination with post modernity, and I think that has to do with the fact that a lot of the people who are doing the theoretical stuff are tied directly to the academy. Whereas in the U.S., the people doing the the important theoretical stuff to me are not tied to the academy, and so have no allegiance or fealty to you know one department is kind of the Foucauldian department, and one department is kind of the Baudrillard and, and in the U.S., it's a whole bunch of people just kind of sitting at their computers and thinking and writing and rejecting and accepting things on the basis of how well they reflect the material conditions. Here, there's an additional pressure to basically to write and to publish things that are accepted within the academic community, and that, of course, limits discourse. Well, and it, it, is, it is also worth mentioning that here in the U.S., that phenomena is true if you are closer to the university yourself. In other words, if you are somehow, you know, a para-academic or, or you know, uh, connected to a grad student, you might think that anarchism has a lot more to do with the university than, than you do. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the only discipline that really hops off that, that track is, I think, history, because then they have to reflect the ideas that went into the historical event that they're describing. So in that way, they're freed up a bit. But nonetheless, their own interpretation of that historical event will undoubtedly fall within certain paradigms, prisms associated with the academy. So, And, and we're, not, we're not held to that. That's one of the reasons, I think, why we're, we are where we are. Also, the material conditions, you know, where what we face in the U.S. is functionally very different than what they're facing in the global south. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, because, of course, you know, from the U.S. perspective, one thinks about Brazil and we don't imagine there being a middle class. We don't we just imagine poor people and rich people, you know, whereas obviously in the U.S., anarchism is a result of middle class, you know, the middle class. How, right. how is that true and not true in Brazil? Well, the Brazilian economy is very closed in the context of South America. So, in other words, there's there's very few things being exported and imported. So, most of the money that's being made is specifically goods produced in Brazil or from South American countries that are being sold within Brazil. So, there's a there's there's a detachment from the international economic community, and that means that there's reliance upon the economy itself. So, you know, the the Brazilians they were. I think there was a certain level of relief when Trump was elected because they recognized that, wow, we, we hopped off the, you know, because if Clinton had been elected, there would have been a real issue around neoliberalism. But so the Brazilians, you know, the, the, even the middle class, uh, as an example, my compañera's uh, father is a doctor, very much a Trotskyist. Uh, very much in, was involved with the PT, the, the Workers' Party, when it was coming up. So there is a certain level, I think, of sense of class and sense of independence in Brazil as a result of kind of this closed economy and closed uh, system that they've evolved. Um, you know, Lula, the, the previous president, who will likely be president again, really also put in safeguards against the international banking systems. And so that's why the 2008 crisis didn't touch Brazil until 2013. It's because the protections that they put into the Brazilian financial markets protected them, basically. I mean, they couldn't avoid it, but they could at least postpone it, which was interesting. So there's a, there's a, there's the, the, the working class, everything is more center, but you know, the, there's a center left party, the working the workers party, and then there's a center right party, which is the party of tenor. And then there's kind of a party that social democratic party, you know, no kidding, is kind of the middle of the road party, which becomes the kingmaker. So where, whichever way they lean, they will produce a president on either side. So it's 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 a little bit more left and a little bit more closed in the U.S. economy, and it, it produces a a little bit more political consciousness. That said, in Sao Paulo at least, which is the fiscal and financial center of the country, the papers here there's one working class or two kind of working class papers, and the rest are really hardcore, uh, you know, hardcore financial, that type of thing. And then the, the religion plays a huge part in it, not only Catholicism, but also, you know, the evangelical religions, which are growing by leaps and bounds here. So there's a, there's a deep conservatism in the country that 
oddly, both the, both the working workers party and the right wing parties can appeal to and, and appropriate as their own. So it's, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's, uh, it's like I say, it's, it's very different, very much the same. The, the type of evangelicalism like you would get in the U.S. though, for instance, the Roy Moore thing with, uh, you know, fondling a 14 year old, that'd never fly in Brazil. That person would be out on the street. That, that's, that's just beyond the pale. However, if he was caught with his hand in the till, you know, for 600 or 700,000, you know, dollars no one would care <laughs> you know it's like oh that's just part of being a politician <laughs> interesting well really really my question was was how, what? was how these things relate to the anarchist space in other words in in the u.s obviously we do a lot of we, we emphasize production and doing things you can only do if you have a certain uh, level of material conditions. Right. How right. is that different? Um, the because of the linkages with the. Um, I mean, there are strong linkages with the uh, here in, in Brazil with the Tupi and with the with the indigenous struggles, as we saw with Salva, you know, uh, Monte, uh, Santiago Maldonado in Argentina, which was a big news here in in in, uh, in Brazil. There is a kind of a linkage, almost a primitivist type linkage, and. Uh, you know, kind of a, I don't want to use the word fetishism, but it's almost an idealization, I guess, of native uh, ways of life and things like that. I think that that's one of the reasons why I, it was interesting. You know, I got into, did a little bit of the ayahuasca ritual, Santo Daime, and there I found a number of anarchists who were kind of looking into that as a way to increase their spirituality, as a way to increase their contact with the land, you know, that type of thing. It was certainly, it's a Christian religion, but it's not presented in a very Christian manner. So, um, you know, in terms of the material conditions, I think their attitude is is that, you know, it kind of like marks at the end of his life as well as I think Kropotkin, the idea that using local structures might be the best way to be able to achieve a, a stateless society as opposed to pushing the conditions of production and, you know, the idea of luxury, uh, communism and that type of thing. They're foreign here. They don't, they don't see that. They, they want to, they see the forest as the answer and not the, the city streets. Hmm. Well, that actually brings us to our topic at hand, Perfect. which, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and really, I, I just, I, I want to begin, you know, sort of gesturing in this direction, which is this idea that, that for us to talk about technology and a critique of technology, uh, there was a critique that sort of came out of the 80s and in the 90s mm -hmm. that we kind of associate with being John Zerzan's critique, but obviously there was a, po a popular version of this too that looked like critiquing television. Um, and, I, and I want to talk a little bit about what a more modern critique of technology would look like vis-a-vis -vis the fact that technology today is, is not as much about isolation like the television set was in the 80s or, right. the, or, the, or the automobile was and right. is and that technology today or the technology of the internet has basically changed the game. Right. And I feel like you basically today are almost uh, misguided to refer to what you're doing as a critique of technology. Really what you're doing is you're, is, is a critique of the internet or, or an, a, a deep examination of, of how uh, the tendrils of the internet have have uh, surrounded so many aspects of, of the, the circulatory system and have mostly done it in the name uh, similar to capitalism in an absolutely consensual way um, and more and, and most pointedly in, in a way that where you feel as though because you're using the internet you're actually doing communication rather than removing yourself from communication what are your right. thoughts? Well, you, you know, just to, just to kind of develop the idea a little bit. So I think that the, the big piece that Zerzan was playing with in the 80s and 90s, in which we were interested in, was the idea that there was never a fundamental increase in technology without a fundamental decrease in human alienation and freedom. Okay, so that, that's kind of the way that it was looked at in the 80s and 90s. And to a certain extent, there, there, there's good resonances there. And that also produces, like when you read Elements of Refusal, where he's talking about, you know, language, number, time, art, that type of thing. And then he goes into, and then he goes into insurrection. He's drawing a very interesting parallel there between not only do, were insurrections more severe and more potentially system changing in the 17 and 1800s, but that was also when technology was in the process of coming into being and developing all of the tendrils that, you know, Jacques Ellul 
Joel talks about where it became less, you know, an object that I had on the counter the whole time and more the idea behind the object, more the idea behind we can make this better, you know, we can produce something better, but it never goes away. So there's kind of that thing to it. With the development of the, you know, the internet, and I think also for us in terms of critical analysis, we also have to take a look at the growth of kind of the financial markets and what that what that has ultimately played into at, in terms of the material conditions of society. You know, we're looking at a completely, not a different beast, but we're looking at a beast that now, before technology was something which was in effect alien to us. Like the, the zine culture had nothing to do with the way that magazines were printed, right? We, we went out, we were Xerox ninjas, that type of thing. Here, we're using the exact same identical technology to spread our ideas that capital and state are using to spread their ideas, which is very interesting, right? So th- there's, a, there's a congruence there, which we really haven't been able to, to establish before. And it also establishes a certain parity, not necessarily of power, because, of course, they're Loudspeakers are much larger, much larger than ours, but it establishes a parity of terrain. In other words, we stand on the same land and ground in terms of in terms of that struggle. That said, I think that one of the big things that is of concern to us is you know getting back to our most some of our most fundamental ideas, which is the immediate. You know how immediate is the internet? It's not. It's it's a it's a virtual definition of what Hegel produced for us when he talked about mediated relationship. In other words, I'm talking to a computer now. You're talking to a computer now, and yet we're exchanging information, communication. But the, you know how immediate is that? So there's a. I think there's a there's a question that can be raised there, and of course. What was it Microsoft? I think it was Microsoft in 2000, 2001 did their famous study where they said, you know, they wanted to ask a question, does the internet increase our contact with humanity or decrease it? Well, they found it decreased the number of our contacts, but it decreased actually how we relate to the people that we have face-to-face contact with, right? So I think that that's one of the, the, the big critiques that I have for it now is that, yes, it increases our contact. You know, it's like I can type something into Facebook and I have a virtual guarantee that maybe three or four hundred people most of whom I haven't met face-to-face, are going to get this, and some may actually comment and let me know what they think about it. That is a good thing. On the other hand, the immediate contact that we would potentially have as a result of our being in the same room together face-to-face discussing, that is, that's gone. And that's, again, that kind of takes it out of the Zerzan realm, which was... Well, especially now, Zerzan bases it almost on the, the classic ideas of morality. You know, in other words, technology is immoral because it causes this alienation. And I don't think it's immoral because it causes alienation. I don't consider it immoral at all. I consider it a two double edged sword where it increases my contact but decreases my immediate. Uh, contact with somebody it increases the number of contacts, but decreases the immediate contact. So, so there's there's kind of that material. That said, it's also an extremely fragile medium as well as those of us who live in Brazil know, where every once in a while the internet will completely just go, and that's when you know the kind of the this the desire to be in contact with other people. That's where the most fundamental thing that puts anarchism on the map is deprived. In other words, wow, the people that I'm in contact with by the internet. You know, whether it's you, Aragorn, or, you know, Jason, or people by email or whatever, I can't get in contact with, and I feel like I'm deprived. So there's a certain level of uh, deprivation associated with the fragility of it. That's, that's, the, that's the negative. The positive is that the financial markets same, the same, face the same fucking thing, right? So in other words, the financial markets... The minute they lose communication, all of a sudden ships in the water don't know where to go. People who are transporting chocolate from, or, or chocolate liqueur from one part of Brazil to the other have no idea who they're supposed to speak to. So they, it, that causes the potential breakdown of society. And we haven't seen that yet. We've seen small, small instances of that, but that fragility associated with the internet, I think is, is one of its most basic critiques. Um, I met a guy in Athens who was a real interesting character actually, uh, at one of the squats there who was working on the idea of anarchist infrastructure. In other words, after his argument was rather interesting, he said, you know, after the revolution, we can't eat from garbage cans forever. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, that's probably true. And then he said, but the issue is, is that we can construct small, um, you know, locally based internets or internet working, you know, uh, groups where we can communicate with each other and that exclude potentially the, the, the forces of, of control, the forces of authority. So, um, it opens up new vistas for us. In other words, how do we take this extremely centralized, extremely, you know, uh, networked, 
uh, uh, tool and how do we turn it into something that we can, we can use for us so that it increases our ability to contact each other. And then the other question is how, how do we, how does it increase? How does it, you know, how does it increase our ability to work with each other? How does it increase our ability to coordinate our activities over time and over space? So that's at least kind of a first iteration of some of the material around, around technology. So. Well, I, just to expand on my own thoughts a little bit, <clears throat> I think that I would actually draw a parallel a little bit between uh, Suzanne's work or, or just the general work of anarchist anti-technology uh, stuff from the 80s with uh, Society of the Spectacle. Sure. Which, you know, very strong. I, I, I more or less had a, have a nodding acceptance of almost all the premise of the of the book and, and of its sort of conceptual terrain. But by and large, it, it is easy to understand why uh, when people refer to this as out of the spectacle, they they were shorthanded by saying, and it's about the media, <clears throat> which clearly the book is about a lot more than just the media, oh, yeah. but, but it can easily be unfairly tarred with, with having a, a simpler project than it does. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I think that DeBoer was uh, sensitive to this, and so you know, ten years later or so, he wrote this uh, res- sort of follow up, this postscript to mm-hmm. Society of the Spectacle, and I think that that's actually what the internet really represents to me is a postscript to a critique of technology to say that um, yes, the spectacle you know can be thought of in a variety of different ways, but it's exceedingly important for us to really reflect on the fact that the spectacle has become integrated. Right. And when we refer to technology, whether or not we're talking about the electrical grid or the way in which technology divides and separates us, the internet has become a way in which all those aspects have become one. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, that, that's, I mean, it, regardless of what you're going to call it, I mean, systemically, the internet has come to, I guess, epitomize just exactly how fragile, but how workable, in spite of that fragility, you know, capital has become, or the nation state has become. I mean, when all of our communications run through it, I mean, it's the ultimate squeeze point in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the information that's passed back and forth. It's the ultimate squeeze point in terms of regulating action and control and authority. So in that sense, it does, and you're absolutely right, when DeBoer's talking about a spectacle, he's hardly talking, he's, you know, media is just the, the minutest fraction of what he's talking about there. I mean, ultimately, he's talking about kind of this two-tiered approach where it's affecting the human psyche and affecting the way that we think and react and respond to certain stimuli, whether it's through the media, whether it's through things that we see live, whether it's our interactions with other people, and also how the forces of control and domination are seeking to further affect those responses, to further change our reactions and to make them more pliable, to make them, you know, less potentially uh, confrontational with the system itself. And here on the internet, you're absolutely right. It all comes together. As an example, I can get into Google. I can Google onto, you know, U.S. Army websites. I can Google onto, you know, Facebook pages. I can Google onto the alt-right, that type of thing. So there's, so it, 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 puts together it it melds kind of in a single in a single uh, form all of the weaknesses and all of the strengths that the technological arguments have been based on the technological arguments against and also there's been strong technological arguments for and remember Deborah comes out of a Marxist standpoint I mean the, ultimately well the two stated goals of the project of the situation is international the very first one is the control of nature which is of course exactly what Marx said the, the fall of communism was was to control nature. Well, that's a, a, a tantalizing uh, a distraction, but I'm, I'm going to avoid it. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> the um, uh, so I didn't actually think I don't think I actually sent this to you, but but in my description of sort of what I wanted to talk about with people, I presented two kind of responses to. Um, uh, you know, to the, the, the threat of technology. And, and so there's sort of the hard response and the soft response. And the hard response is sort of like the, um, the bravado of saying things like, you know, the answer is to take down the electrical grid. And, and, um, and, you know, it used to be very much that anarchism and, and anarchist-esque behaviors, whether it's Earth First or whatever, were all about contemplating, like, what would the techniques 
be involved for us to take down the electrical grid? You know, how, how easy is it to take, to take down a high tension tower or, um, or a dam? Right. And then there's a soft approach, which basically says, I personally in my life am going to design it in such a way that, that for instance, I'm going to get off of Facebook or I'm, I'm just going to, um, I'm going to control my relationship to technology and, you know, not essentially like, like directly attack it or, or see that as being the mission. So I'm curious as to your thoughts about those two different sort of responses and, you know, those, your critique of, of both or either. And then, we'll, and then we'll go from there. Um, let me offer a third a third path, and it's kind of the way that I mean, you know, I think like this, and I'll, I'll just put it out there. To me, the technology, the internet, as we currently have it, is a weapon of war, and it allows us to do things, you know, that we would not be able to do. So when you think about what classic guerrilla actions are, you know, ninety percent of all guerrilla activity is to evade capture. One thing the the internet allows us to do is, if we use it smart, we can evade capture. We can evade the forces of control if we use it intelligently. So as a tool in that way, you know, it, it provides us with, with some pretty powerful uh, material. Second, I think the issue is, is that it also provides us with the ability to, to, to use information as a tool as well. In other words, to provide misinformation. Um, in terms of the, the critiques, I think the soft critique is the stronger of the two where one adopts a, a kind of a stance towards technology where I'm going to use it in such a fashion so that it benefits my project or me. And I am going to base that on, you know, experimentation. I'm going to base it on, you know, I don't, I don't know what that would look like specifically, but I would imagine something like parents restricting TV viewing to one hour a night or something mm -hmm. like that. Sure. In other words, I'm, I'm going to only be on Facebook one hour a night, but I'm going to get everything done during that hour, you know, so there, there's kind of that control. And I, you know, I'm not sure that's going to be the individual's call because obviously how it affects the, the person's happiness and their, their contentment and how they're situated, I think is, is going to ultimately be the criteria for that. Uh, the first one exists for us as always an option. I mean, as we talked about previously, this is a, this is an incredibly fragile medium that has been brought up and is now using as the primary marketplace and tool of communication for everyone everywhere. How many, how many people does Facebook have? A billion? So one in five people on the planet has a Facebook profile? That's incredible. Well it's yeah. closer to two, but there's also more people on the planet. Than oh, that's right. Are. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't Maybe it was five billion when I was born. I don't remember. Anyway, yeah. so there's, there's billions of people. Two billion yeah. have it. So, I mean, that's, that's an example of, you know, the, the, but the very fact that it relies upon physical infrastructure, whether that's servers or whether that's, you know, uh, electronic, you know, uh, communication systems or whether that's just power, electrical power. Um, so... I mean, all of those function for us, but the actual attacking of it, you know, why do that when we can use it at this point in time? And we have been using it at this point in time to be able to further, you know, our, our nefarious activities. I just, I, you know, I, I see the potential for it, but in terms of actually bringing it down, unless you're an anarcho-primitivist, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. You know, it's like, I, I don't even, you know, Zerzin at the stage of the game, he does a radio program. What's he going to do? Knock out every radio station, but his own? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So it's the type of thing where, yeah, we can hold the idea of this hard, hard critique of technology or the actual destruction of technology in the rear. I mean, it may serve us at some point in time. But as of now, the tool is powerful enough and, you know, we appear to be smart enough to be able to use it. Again, I, I've been stunned by the ability of us to be able to use it and the inability of the alt-right to be able to use it appropriately. It seems like, you know, if you, if you make a Pepe meeting, you know, it takes immediately 10% off or 10 points off your IQ factor. It's like, it's crazy. You know, the amount of stupidity that they've been able to, to do. But also, it's interesting to watch them place misinformation within the press. The so-called fake news has been fascinating to me. I, you know, why we're not doing a little bit more of that, I'm not sure. Probably because we have a few, <laughs> a few scruples. Like, I, I just don't feel like doing that. Although, boy, have I felt like it every once in a while. So, um, so you know, again, it's, it, we used to argue 
in the 80s and the 90s, and this was the technology, there is a certain value to technology, and that value all falls on the negative side. I think that that argument has gone away to the fact that technology, in the form of the internet, in the form of our communication, now is a bit like a hammer or a gun, where it can be used for good or it can be used for ill. And that's a significant change, and that's a change that the anarcho-primitivists, and I think that Zerzan has not and probably will not be able to include within their theoretical framework because the minute you imply that something has an up and a downside, that's that's not where you argue from because you argue from a point of value, from a point of morality. And internet being, you know, technology being fundamentally evil means that there's no way that it can potentially be used for good, which I would argue that empirically we can pretty much verify that we've, we've used it pretty effective good. Like I said, I mean, and you were around for this too. It's like the ability for us to make contact with each other globally has fundamentally changed. Now, we're, we're in contact with communes in the Philippines. How often would that happen if we were just writing letters to each other, you know? So there's a, you know, there's an, the, the move from a, from a single value system to where technology is evil to an ambivalent value system where it has negative aspects. It's easy to, it's easy to monitor. It's easy to, to be able to utilize information to find people also has a positive where it's easy to communicate with people. And that just implies that we have to have better security. So there's a, there's a certain ambivalence to it now, which I think we would never have argued in the eighties and nineties that there was an ambivalence to it. Again, going all the way back to the beginning of the discussion, we would always, I think, have argued that there has never been a fundamental increase in, you know, technology without a fundamental decrease in the freedom and happiness of the species. Well, I, it, what's interesting is is how much I'm agreeing and disagreeing with you in equal measure, because um, I think that my attitude has always been that that whether or not something is, you know, morally good or evil has almost no consequence as to whether or not I use it. Mm-hmm. So in other words, like I, I think I, I, at least for the, for the course of this conversation, I'll say, I think I agree with John that, that, uh, or, or, you know, with the anarcho primitivist critique that says that, uh, uh, our over dependence or, or our dependence on technology as it increases our freedom and our ability to, to be free decreases. I think I, I, I agree with that. Right. Um, even though it is a moral uh, assertion. Right. <clears throat> but but um, but I think that I don't live in a like. But I, I also am an absolutist when it comes to the to 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 freedom. Actually, right. this follows uh, Bonanno. Um, you know where Bonanno says there is no there there is no such thing as freer. Right. Um, there's free and there's not free, and and I and I basically. Agree with that also, and so, so that means that I I sort of accept the premise that in this world we are not free, right? And so whether or not we use technology in the context of this world is sort of besides the fact. In in, in other words, like yeah, and and so um, so yeah, I guess I have a really mercenary attitude around technology, which is where I absolutely agree with you, right? Um, you know, w- w- which is to say that. That uh, I, I probably wouldn't point to the same things as being the, the things that, that I think are free, because I, I kind of also agree with the premise that says that, yes, we have more communication with people all over the world. But right. I have less I have less communication now with people who are my next door neighbors. Right. Exactly. Specifically in, in the context of the anarchist space, you know. In the 90s, when I lived in the Bay Area and was an anarchist, like the anarchists I worked with were the ones who lived close to me and and who I could possibly have a human relationship with. Um, now that said, I have a larger crew today than I than was possible in the 90s in the Bay Area. Right. In the Bay Area, but I have a much larger group of people in the Bay Area that I don't want to talk to and don't want to work with and don't want to know. <laughs> right. And, and, ba- and basically in, in that way, the internet is, is, is something that I use to have relationships with people who don't live here. And, right. and but, but to put it more crassly and to put it in the, in the, in the place that most people <clears throat> would, would have, um, it's easier to have relationships with people in the Philippines than to have relationships relationships with people in Oakland. Right. It can be. 
Definitely. Right. Definitely. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, there's another piece of the argument, too, which we haven't really pulled out. And Jerzy doesn't really deal with it a little much because he's he's a lot more philosophical and he's a lot more hardcore than I think that Jerzy uh, has talked about. And, he, you know, his, his the idea behind a little is that once you hop onto the what he calls techniques, once you hop onto this technological cycle, it is its own teleology. Uh, his one of my favorite examples of his is the Tennessee Valley Authority, where um, you know the the during the uh, well, the, the administration, the Roosevelt administration, you know the one of the one of the big projects he did was to electrify the South, and the Tennessee Valley Authority was a series of dams, hydroelectric yeah. dams that were used. And the the, the way that Jacques Ellul goes into it is that never in any of the any, any of the work on the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is ongoing today by the way, was there ever a question that we need to, we need to stop and we need to stop developing technology and maybe start taking out some of these dams. Rather, what was happening was that, you know, well, like as one of his examples, one of these slopes, one of the slopes into the dams was having problems with, with erosion. So as a, as opposed to saying, wow, maybe this dam is poorly placed, they basically started planting trees. The trees didn't work. They put in concrete. The concrete fell off. And then ultimately what they did is they injected concrete into the slope to basically to secure the slope so that the dam wouldn't, wouldn't fall. So his argument is, is that there's a teleology here. It's moving towards something. And you kind of, as you sit back and take a look at technology over the course of the past two or three decades, you realize, you know, we'll had some points here because there is a, there's not necessarily a rapidity because nothing new has really been invented, but it's becoming more and more convenient. It's becoming faster. The memories are becoming greater on the computers, that type of thing. And that that movement where, you know, his, his ultimate question is, and he's very Christian about this, is what exactly, what does the heaven look like that technology is leading us to? Or is it really hell, right? So, <laughs> and that's one thing, you know, that's actually Kaczynski uh, in his, you know, technological society or his, his, you know, the, the, his manifesto. Kaczynski mentions LL over and over again because he's kind of, that's, that's the dark shadow that he sees at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I, you know, I think that one of the reasons why I don't talk about that particular phenomenon that much is because sort of for me an a priori uh, is that I'm opposed to, the, to that Christian worldview. Right. Um, and, and also, you know, as far for for what it's worth, we already live in that hell, mm-hmm. rather than it's coming or that there's some sort of end game. You know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, when I see the life of someone who's an internet creature, which I'm I'm of course seeing more and more as the years go by, right. that that life is hell. Yeah, you know. Uh, because of Facebook, you know, I really do get to experience all these different life ways. And, and, and there really are people who are, you know, 30 plus years old who basically have never had a real human relationship. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that seems amazing. to Like, not just amazing, like horrifically amazing. Like, like hell does exist. Sure. It's happening around us now. Sure. Well, you know, it, it raises a question, too, and, and actually Frank Herbert in Dune and a couple of his other books raises this interesting question. Is there a point in time when the species basically says that's enough? You know, like Dune in the, the beginning, I think, chapter or two, he talks about, you know, kind of the the idea that developing a machine that can potentially think like a human being was placed off limits to the species. So basically, that's not going to happen anymore. And there was an attempt to de-technologize human relationships as well as, you know, uh, systems of control and authority, where it eventually, you know, led into what he describes, which is ultimately kind of a medieval or, uh, you know, a, a Islamic medieval type of arrangement, you know, where feudal fiefdoms are, are carved out depending on space products and things like that. So, And that's what Alul doesn't allow for. Alul basically, and again, this is the Christian thing, Alul basically says, this is the road you're on. There's no hopping off. You know, there, there is no, and then kind of coming at that as an anarchist and, you know, in the tradition that I'm in, my attitude is there's always a moment to hop off. The only question is, you know, is the, is the species going to do it and what is it going to take for the species to do and what will that look yeah. like? In other words, are we going to de-technologize? Is there going to be boundaries set around technology? You know, what the, the argument around genetic modification was one of the ones that was most interesting to me because it was really a chance for even science to step up and say, we 
don't really want to screw with this very much because it's really dangerous and we're not sure what the outcomes would be. Did that happen? Under no circumstances, right? They were like, well, let's start with animals and we won't do it with humans. Well, of course, now we know that they're, they're doing it with, you know, human genetics and that in, in certain instances, people are doing it on themselves. So the question, you know, it pushes the, it pushes the, the, the ending point down the road. Is there, is there going to be a, a stopping point? Is there a place of, a place of not no return, but a place of some return where we get some, we use technology, but technology ceases to, to, to use us, I think is, is one way to put it. So, I, you know, yeah. there's a lot of questions around that. And I, I actually like that question. I, that's one of the reasons I like doing so much is that he presupposes that humanity has basically said, oh, yeah, you start designing a computer with a human brain, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, you've, you've made a huge mistake, which, uh, which is that you brought up Dune because um – uh, I've, and I've never mentioned this on the podcast before, but but Dune really was my uh, come to the light moment in my childhood. Mm. Um, I'm a serious Dune head. I uh, um, uh, so I've I've read all of his books and his son's books. Um, and his son just basically went through his father's heritage and just basically uh, uh, destroyed every. Um, every beautiful sort of like kernel that that his father put on the ground, his son just went to just crushed it uh. in the concrete. Um, so, so what you're referring to is actually called the Butlerian Jihad, right? Um, and the concept of it was that you know at some point there's basically a fatwa against thinking machines, and and this really is why the the Dune universe has that Islamic feel to it, right? Is because it, because the, the origin story of how the the feudal regime that you're referring to sort of came to being was 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 a jihad, and and it totally I I, I I, you're asking absolutely the right the right questions out of that, which is that um, the ways in which transformation could and would happen will will look like nothing we've imagined. It, it will look very different, and um, uh, and you know the the concept in the books. You know that's not an that's not a not technological world. Right. That's that's a world that doesn't have technology that looks like silicon chips and robots. Right. It instead looks like yeah, human specialization to the nth degree. Right. And and that's a that's a place where you already see a, a level of interest, but there's nowhere near the intelligence to sort of make that kind of thing happen. Oh, I agree. I agree. No, it's 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 interesting too that the uh, in the in the book. You know, the, the, the original, at least as I remember it, the original arguments against technology were raised by the scientists and it eventually morphed into its own religion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? So yeah. that in and of itself, you know, is, is kind of telling where, you know, the, the people who are involved with this are the ones who put the halt to it. And then it, it, it became such a, a piece of cultural critique that it develops into its own faith. <laughs> yeah, so. Sure. <laughs> Well, and honestly, you know, the other thing that is worth mentioning here, and and I think that this does tend to be true, but it's but it's challenging from an outsider. In other words, that uh, Herbert was a scientist, right? Right. His his interest was in sort of holistic uh, ecology, biology type sciences, right? But you know, a lot of his thinking around Dune began with thinking about wave patterns and what it actually looks like for wave patterns to happen in in deserts, right? And um. And and so for me this this does bring up you know some of my favorite thinkers you know let's say Firebond or who I'm probably pronouncing totally incorrectly like the the best critiques against science comes from people who have a, a who are speaking from the inside right. whereas you know a Zerzan or almost all of sort of the anarcho primitivist sort of worldview come from people who really have no fucking idea what they're talking about and. And then pointedly, you know, the people who are the biggest fans of science also tend to have very little uh, knowledge about what it is that they're talking about. But they're taking they're coming at the perspective from a fan perspective rather than from a critic or an outsider's perspective. Sure. And and definitely both positions, you know, for me, uh, I do not enjoy. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's I was thinking about this last night, actually, and oddly in a different context, but, you know, it kind of reflects back on the Frankfurt School, too, where the idea of imminent critique, in other words, standing within the system that you need to critique right. and being right. able to take the system's promises 
as real. In other words, mm-hmm. what the, the, the Frankfurts did is they basically said, all right, capitalism, what are your claims? You know, you're going to be the best system. You're going to feed and house and clothe more people. You're going to realize, you know, an, an epic of human history where people are going to be related to each other. There's going to be peace, that type of thing. Let's see if that's true. And of course, they were, they were writing and thinking during, you know, pre-World War II and then during World War II and then the brief period thereafter. And of course, they, they, they found it came up over and over again, completely lacking in terms of its own promises to itself, you know, ultimately. And so that, that level of imminent critique, I think you're absolutely right. I, you know, it's, you know, the, the people, when I'm in the U.S. and I'm traveling around and driving and things like that, I always try to strike up conversations in, in, you know, diners and Greek, you know, places to eat on the road and things like that. And invariably I'll hit in, I'll launch into somebody who's like a, a veteran, 20 years, and they are the most anti-government people I usually meet on my travels. You know, forget the anarchists, because they're the ones who've seen what the system can do and hate it immeasurably. Right. So it's kind of like, the you know, you kind of see this in scientists where they're, they're the ones who kind of see what the system can do and then and then are capable of critiquing it appropriately. You know, in terms of the post left, that's where we came from. You know, it's like Kamat didn't stand outside Marxism and criticize Marxism. Kamat was foot and root and branch was based in ultra left, ultra left communism. And that's where his critique came from. Same thing with Bordiga, you know, same thing with the situationists. You know, they didn't they didn't they they evolved the coherence system it wasn't necessarily consistent but it was coherent it's complete and you know that's that's i think ultimately where technology if it, if it fundamentally is is collapsed in the way that it currently is it's not going to be by people who aren't scientists yeah it won't be yeah. by lay people well actually let's let's narrow this conversation down you know, we're not, we're now into our last 10 minutes uh, let's talk about the post-left critique of technology and how it should and perhaps has evolved from where it began. Um, you know, the, I think in terms of taking um, taking the individual, there's a there's a certain level of ambivalence from those who speak from the purely um, uh, individualist strain uh, regarding technology. I mean, it's you know you don't see much. Um, from like a Wolfie or a Jason, that type of thing, uh, or even Bob Black uh, at this stage of the game. I think that some of the, some of the younger, um, post leftists, and here I'm, I'm going to riff on a few people are looking for technological alternatives. And the, the one guy who comes out who I, it was kind of interesting is Bones, you know, at the Conjure House, who his technology is witchcraft, right? Which, I, sure. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a laughable thing, but we got to admit that witchcraft was basically a way to interact with nature and to control it. So there's, no, it, has, it has a technological component it has, to it. Exactly. As many of the same urges, like rather than having a magic box, do your bidding it it's it's a, a magic ritual sure and there's no there's you know there's no surprise that alchemy eventually developed into chemical sciences you know it's mm-hmm. i mean that just makes perfect sense because they were both they have different motives but they're producing roughly the same type of technique they're producing the same type of technology you know to be able to manipulate lead into gold is no different than being able to manipulate you know a, a series of plutonium atoms into a thermonuclear explosion same concept you know i mean it's, it's nice of you to mention bones but i'm not sure he qualifies <laughs> as being part of our part of our family I, I, he is not part of our family i well he's 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 close enough to be able to mention um i you know i in terms of other posts, I mean, in terms of my material, I almost never touch on, on post-left material. Let me ask you this. Do you have anyone specifically in mind in terms of who's writing now about technology? Because I, it's been kind of, it's one of the things that, that has been left behind as a result of, I think, the internet and that type of thing and has not really been picked up by anybody and examined in any close way. I will, you know, to be brutally honest with you, I just, I'm not pulling any names out of my hat that, you know that anybody's writing about. Um, well, you know, the the reason that I'm doing this uh, series is to is to have this conversation and, and is to revitalize at least a, a a knowledge of this conversation. Sure. But but you know I think the person who I'm waiting for their for their intervention and who who seems to say that he's going to do it is Jason. Right. In other words, when I refer to post left, you know I tend to be referring to the half dozen authors of the post left articles from Ajoda, and I tend to be referring to the family of people around Ajoda. Right. Whereas whereas new people who fall under post left, I actually think that there's probably a, a different term or a, like you know the the broad anti left or or you know the 
the left behind. <laughs> you know, once, all the, <laughs> right. once all once all the others have ascended. Right. No. Um, like uh, like so so to me when I refer to the post left, I tend to be referring to the to the people who are older than me. Right. And so so I think that Jason has something in brewing. And has and 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 there are some articles in, um, you know, in your journal right. that 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 are more recent interventions into a, tech, a conversation around technology. And, and really, my question to you is sort of like, what what have you liked out of that uh, set of texts? Yeah. Um. I guess, you know, for me, it kind of goes back to one of the original arguments about the left and kind of the development through that. So we, we had mentioned situationists and, and, you know, Marx is real clear in terms of his ideas of communism, which is, you know, the control of nature. And I think that the ideas behind understanding um, the natural world and being able to, to exist within it uh, in some, you know, positive way in some way that you know reflects well on the individual who's doing it that that to me is i think one of the strongest pieces that comes out in terms of technology the post left is there's a fundamental rejection of the idea that that communism is somehow aligned with the control of nature rather i think that we have you know we've done a lot in terms of in terms of talking about you know not idealizing nature, and here I'll get into a little Bookchin bashing. I mean, the one thing that bugs me about Bookchin, and especially the deep ecology people, uh, is that the, the idealization of nature, the idea that nature is some type of form other than the self, is 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 fun, is fundamentally wrong, and will ultimately lead you into you know Savitri Devi type of stuff, which is deep ecology verges in some instances, and Derek Jensen will probably cross this line at some point in time in the fascism. It's going to, you know, it has to because that's where that's where it can potentially lead. You know, this idealization of nature. Um, however, I think that there's a there's a there's a com, there's a what would I say almost a mundane view of nature that even Zerzan has brings to his writing where he would never I don't think consider himself to be a deep ecologist. Rather, the idea that you know there is a there's a harmony a rhythm a give and take that can potentially be used. I also in terms of uh, you know, in terms of ideas regarding a, a stateless society, there is a place, I think, in post-left ideas for the existence of, of uh, technology. But, you know, it, it, it's seen as almost a, a slow detechnologization, you know. In other words, um, I, I riff on, um, I'm sure you've read this 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 uh, story a million times by Philip K. Dick about the uh, the anarchists who eventually take over the world, you know, and where there's very few anarchists in society, but lots of people who are surviving, and they go from place to place and they kind of see what's going on and they make sure that there's no governments happening. But as we follow this one anarchist as he's going into a community, there is they've decided to I think discontinue producing oil products as a result of their community that they have and are going to rely upon vegetable products to fuel their cars and things like that. So the idea of detechnologization and of some type of, co- you know, some type of coalition or coalescing around an anti-technology or a, I guess a non-technology. I mean, if techniques, like Will says, is a, is a teleological course, then if you hop off that and retain the technology you have, I guess that's an a-technological society. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, and that that to me is, I think, where where at least a lot of the ideas that have evolved around technology go. And it's interesting too. I, I think about some of the because there's been, you know, um, John has written uh, uh, some of his science fiction stuff, some of his Lovecraftian science fiction stuff, and it's interesting to me that. Well, it, sorry, sorry, sorry. When you're referring to John here, you're referring to John Henry, right? John Henry. Um, <laughs> no, his, his, because obviously the listeners. No, that's John Henry, and you know his his material is all Lovecraftian, and he doesn't. There's no, there's no technology. There's no steampunk. There's no, uh, there's nothing like that at all in his material. Um, it's you know, it's most of it's set in the past, and most of it's you know, 1920s, 1930s. But the actual mention of technology, and it's certainly no guarantee that the old ones won't break break through and destroy the earth. So um, maybe the old ones breaking through and destroying the earth is one of one of the best examples of potentially insurrectionary theory that we've got at this stage of the game. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. So that's that's kind of I I but I will say this, I think that Zerzin's material was really important to us. And I think that again, kind of stepping one step further, 
one of the things that, that we tried to do and we still try to do within post-left ideas is to dig and burrow underneath and see the ideas that animate the, the events, the actions. And so Zerzan's number, time, language, art, that type of thing plays directly into some of the materials that we do. So instant, so for instance, when I dig into organizations, I'm really interested into the capitalist, you know, the nation state and the capitalist presuppositions that flow through and that emanate from, from, uh, from those ideas. I think the same thing can be said for, um, the way that we look at technology. You know, it's like, it's no secret that the defense department was the, father, the mother, the growing ground for the internet. That in and of itself should tell us something about where this technology is coming from. As to whether we use it or not remains to be seen. But nonetheless, the, the growth of technology, the growth of this tool that you and I are currently using to record this show comes from a place that is neither enlightened, it is not liberatory, and it is not a place that we want to return to. Well, it's a yeah, there's lots to say there, uh, and and I have to admit that we we do have some conceptual disagreements. Good. But but I but I will say that, that your description of John's work, John Zerzan's, um, what's I think so. First of all, I, I agree. Uh, what what are referred to as his origin essays, which were all collected by uh, Kevin Tucker into a book by the same name, in my opinion, is his most important work, and really. Um, uh, that's where he should have stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's a way in which his work, you know, whether people accept this or not, is Foucaultian, right? He he really is was interested in the same same story that Foucault was interested in. Right. His his targets were different. Right. And you know, Foucault's targets he, he went deeper and and was more specific in the in where it is that he went deeper. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas John was trying to make more broad theoretical points and not get mired in the actual, you know, real human beings right. uh, aspect of it. But um but but that question of genealogy you know, which let's sure. you know, let's be blunt here in the Foucaultian sense, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or in the Nietzschean sense, okay. really. Sure. Um, that 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 this this was yeah this is this is for a lot of people this is great work this is you know this is the end game and I come away you know after talking about that into thinking about how to tell these um, stories uh, as stories in a better way because. Part of the problem with John's work is that he is a lazy uh, researcher, and so he so he sticks to sort of like dropping in footnotes that may or may not actually be making the point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, especially if you read his Tilo stuff, it's incredibly lazy. You know where he where he does this really dense like all of this stuff is here, here, and here. Um, you know, and and that's really the, you know why why Foucault and John Zerzan are not talked about it in the same breath. Right. You know, is because for whatever other critiques I have of Foucault, which I sort of blame a lot of identity politics uh, stuff on him. Oh yeah. Uh, but but leaving that aside, at least he wasn't a lazy researcher. You know. Right. Right. Well, and I also you know John was writing for you know you read what you call the origin essays. I mean they were written for such a vast array of you know Telos is kind of the classic. You know the the peer reviewed journal, which I understand Telos is recently kind of verging onto the alt right. So you have Telos, which requires all that level of documentation, and then you have some of his other material, which is uh, even less uh, cited. So it, it you know it, it, and he was writing those for what fit the state, that type of thing. So uh, those those would be less strongly less strong on the citations as well. I guess. Well, do you, do you have uh, actually so that we don't escape our time limit? Do you have some final thoughts of things you want to say? Because I, I, I felt you just wanting to leap into in another direction. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, no, I, um, I guess the issue is is that there's always there's always room for other people to come along and to be able to to kind of discuss this. And I, I'm very much interested in technological critiques, especially as time goes on. And I also think that, um, and this it's my own personal call, but I think that there is an issue around health both physical and mental as regards internet, which I think people have avoided assiduously in terms of talking about kind of how it's affected their mental health, both positively and negatively. Right. So I'm not, I'm not, but I think that there, there's an issue there. I also, the, the kind of the philosophy of, of like what Elul did, I would very much like to see 
somebody in future be able to take some of his ideas and to be able to turn them into a, a 21st century or a 22nd century discussion of technology because we've reached a place where we haven't leaped ahead that much, but we've leaped differently that much and differently in the context of what the technology, uh, its, its rapidity, um, the volume of information and the volume of, of, you know, control that it can potentially have on a person's life. And so it almost argues that this point in time for um, new levels of critique and also potentially deeper genealogy as you point out I think that there there's an argument there so but other than that I got to get back to Facebook man you know so can we so we can close <laughs> <laughs> sorry thank you very much for this thank you very much great talking to you 